For most of us, fish is food, a source of tasty and nutritious protein. For criminal actors, it is a billion-dollar business opportunity. Here, I'm talking about illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing, also known as IUU fishing. Because of the secretive nature of the crime, it's really hard to know how big the sector is. But a 2020 study estimated that the annual gross revenues from IUU fishing globally as between $9 and $17 billion. If we talk about the estimated economic loss annually from having these fish diverted from the legitimate trade system, the numbers are even higher, between $26 and $50 billion. In fact, one in every five fish caught around the world every year could originate from IUU fishing, according to the United Nations. Beyond monetary losses, there are multiple negative impacts from IUU fishing. These include habitat and environmental destruction, less fish for future consumers globally, and loss of jobs and incomes for fishing communities locally. It is also linked to corruption, weak governance, illicit financial flows, tax abuse and financial secrecy, and increasingly there are signs pointing to the involvement of national and transnational organized crime networks. As a result, governments, NGOs and the UN have set up initiatives at local, national, regional and international levels to fight this practice. Unfortunately, despite these actions, illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing remains a significant problem and the world has failed to achieve a global target to eliminate it by 2020, according to the IUU Fishing Index. So what can we do to end IUU fishing? Where does the responsibility lie? What roles transnational criminal networks play? These are the questions we're looking to answer in this episode of The Index from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, where we are focusing on IUU fishing particularly in Oceania, a region full of small island and coastal developing states where fisheries play an extremely important role in culture, the economy and politics. I'm Dilna Win. We have two experts, Ian Urbina, a journalist and director of the non-profit journalism organization Outlaw Ocean Project, which focuses on stories about crimes in the ocean, and Dr. Jade Lindley, Specialist in Transnational Organized Crime at the University of Western Australia Law School, who has worked extensively on illegal fishing. I started by asking Ian to explain the linkages between fishing and criminal activities. Yeah, I mean, I view the sea, you know, the offshore realm as a frontier. It's a frontier where more than 50 million people work, and it's a sprawling realm that covers much of the surface of the planet. If you want to explore a frontier sort of anthropologically, one way to do that is to look at the line between what is allowed and what is not. And what's on the other side of that line is crime. So I take a look at the realm in general, but through the perspective of crime. And the crimes that I focus on fall into two categories. They're environmental crimes, so illegal fishing is in that realm, or they're human rights or labor crimes. You know, so that's our general approach to the sphere. Whether the crime is a crime of passion, 
an acute crime, a slow motion crime, an organized crime is irrelevant to me. I'm interested in it all and sort of what it tells us about ourselves as humans, what it tells us about the fate of the planet, what it tells us about the failures or successes of governance, the responsibility of consumers and companies, all those things can be navigated through a lens of crime. We're talking about fisheries today, and it's a sector that is possibly one of the furthest in people's minds when we talk about organized crime. But Ian, it is a highly valuable commodity, isn't it? How and where does fishing and criminal activities intersect? It does, yeah. I mean, I think if you think of the offshore realm as in the simplest form divided between you know who is out there and what are they doing well mostly you have either maritime or merchant marine and they're carrying stuff grain oil nike shoes containers and then you have fishers you know the the, the workers who work on near shore distant water fishing vessels and the vast majority of the people when you look at the 50 55 million people whatever it is are fishers there are lots of other activities out there their navies and their seabed miners and their coast guard vessels and their you know, internet cable laying companies and bioprospectors looking for a cure for cancer and sailors and there are other characters, but the vast majority fit in the fishers category. And the crimes that they're involved in, either they're the, the culprits or the victims or both of crimes. As culprits, they they tend to be committing violence against each other or committing crimes against the environment writ large or committing crimes against the marine resources that exist, i.e. taking stuff that doesn't belong to them. And that's where illegal fishing comes in. So Ian, what's the relationship between IAU fishing and other types of organized crime, like, say, money laundering? And, you know, how are they linked? Yeah, I mean, not only are there linkages, but it's quite important that more and more people and law enforcement and governments and companies pay attention to this other category of crime because it's the sort of Al Capone being taken down by tax um, evasion. You know, it's not as sexy as murder, but it actually often carries much heavier penalties. Likewise, in this realm, when you think of illegal fishing, illegal fishing cannot happen without ancillary crimes. So tax evasion, money laundering, um, identity theft, maritime fraud, often fish laundering, to just to name a few, not to mention sort of boring, you know, wonky maritime crimes like turning off your transponder when that's illegal. All these sorts of things are ancillary, hand in glove connected with illegal fishing. And that's not just important because it's interesting and it's, it's valuable to know the full spectrum. It's important because number one, those crimes take you to on land, you know, players who are doing the actual hard work of those white collar crimes to make these businesses hum and make them profitable. So crimes at sea have an on-land component, but also they tend to carry much heavier penalties. A lot of the illegal fishing crimes are civil, not criminal. And so what that means is a fine. And often the fine is minimal, and it's a sort of rounding error for companies. Whereas these white collar crimes are criminal, and they actually can shut a business down. Uh, they can actually get a, a ship, you know, confiscated and resold. They have teeth. And for both of those reasons, that's why more and more attention should be paid on these more boring but consequential crimes that are connected to illegal fishing. 
Now, in this episode, we wanted to examine one region and its role in IEU fishing, and that's Oceania. Now, in the OC Index, this region covers 14 countries, including Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, and then the Pacific Islands of Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, Vanuatu, and so on. So how bad is IUU fishing in Oceania? Well, it isn't good. Uh, compared to some other regions, a large extent of global IUU fishing occurs in Oceania uh, region. And that's because within the region, there, there is a lot of ocean, both within territorial waters and exclusive economic zone, and also the high seas. This is Dr. Jaden Lee from the University of Western Australia Law School. Within Oceania belongs Australia and New Zealand, which have different crime profiles from each of the smaller Melanesian, Polynesian and Macronesian regions. But being mostly developing countries in the region, many are troubled by weak governance that hinder efforts to effect positive change to IU fishing. There is a lack of financial, physical and human resources to adequately monitor and control what is happening at sea and once fish are landed at port. Often these resources are necessarily allocated elsewhere to more urgent services such as education and healthcare, especially during a pandemic. Another is the global positioning of Oceania, which means that many of the small islands are along or nearby important trade routes. Not only this, but often being quite isolated, they may be very exposed and therefore this increases their relative vulnerability as being transit locations for other organised crime as well as IU fishing. There's also limited political will to change in many locations, which is part of the problem. Many literal countries view fishing as being an important part of their economy and often this may be at the expense of necessary checks and balances set to achieve international environmental sustainability. This is challenging and there needs to be not only a political shift but a cultural shift as well, making the process to change complex. Despite that, led by the Marshall Islands president in 2018, they sought to establish an IU fishing free Pacific by 2023. So we're seeing how, how things are progressing towards that goal. Jay, does the opacity around onshore activities contribute to IEU fishing in Oceania? There is no doubt a correlation between fishing countries and high levels of perceived corruption. Developed countries generally have stronger anti-corruption mechanisms in place, whereas developing countries are comparatively ill-equipped to deal with corruption. So not only is corruption high, the anti-corruption mechanisms are weak, but also given the huge exclusive economic zones of the oceanic countries, it challenges their ability to police, but also creates vulnerabilities to IU fishing or corruptly obtained fishing licenses. The forthcoming United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime and Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations-led Legislative Guide on Combating Crimes in the Fisheries Sector will hopefully be a useful mechanism for countries looking for ways to address IU fishing and related crime. This is a model law to address IU fishing by tackling related crimes. Corruption was noted as an important element of that. More than ever before, there is greater awareness of corruption in the fishing industry. In fact, due to building greater oversight mechanisms now, it is likely to be on the road to improvement. Now, another serious issue across IUU fishing and illicit markets is something called reflagging or flags of convenience. Ian Obina can explain. 
yeah, I mean, flag registries or flags of convenience are not just component variables, they're prerequisites. So unless you have that whole system in place, you can't really on any scalable level get to the kind of crime we're talking about. So what are flag registries? Flag registries are businesses that sort of masquerade. The system is set up in a way that gives the impression that these are entities that are supposed to apply rules on ships. If you want to take a ship, let's say it's a tuna longliner and you want to go from A to B and you want to fish in a certain area and you want the least number of of rules and inspections and sort of burden on you from a regulatory point of view, taxes, then you're going to shop for the flag registry, the flag to fly that has the best price and least rules. So you look around the market and you look at Liberia, you look at Panama, you look at all sorts of places and you come to some country, let's say Djibouti is a good example. Tiny country, has a tiny office, maybe has a staff of four, and you buy the right to fly that flag. And the rules that apply to your vessel, the laws that apply are the laws of the flag you fly. And Djibouti advertises itself as, hey, we have very few rules. Okay, so off you go to the high seas, you fly Djibouti's flag. If something goes awry, if you get caught stealing fish, if some guy dies, if you dump oil and you get caught, you know, you actually have to answer to the flag registry, but you pay the flag register. You're a client of them. So the cop, i.e. the flag registry, who's supposed to enforce rules on you, are also taking money from you. Well, that's an inherent conflict of interest. Furthermore, the very nature of flag registries, their first and foremost priority is to their client's privacy. So when you, the ship owner, gets in trouble with some country for invading their waters, that country contacts the flag registry and the flag registry says, I'm sorry, I can't release that information because these are clients of ours and one of our core tenets of our relationship is privacy. So these flag registries do not serve the law. They do not serve the public. They serve the client and that's the ship and often those ships are bad actors and that's why the whole system's rotten. Now, this sounds a little bit to me like tax havens using privacy as an excuse. It's offshoring of governance, of regulatory oversight to the market. And in the market, you go to the best bidder, the best option, and you buy it. So whether you want to house your money, whether it's banking, and you want to house your money in a place that has the least rules, the least disclosure, the least accountability, and the most protection, or whether you want to house the key elements of your vessel and your activities with the same set of criteria, it's the same system. It's just offshoring, finding, and it's putting governance in the, in the market as opposed to leaving it where it belongs, which is with governments. And there was a time before flag registries or flags of convenience you know, existed. And in that time, when you were a ship, you flew the flag most typically of your home port nation. And the nation exerted governance over the reputation of that flag. And its roles were like a government. You know, not everyone, not all were perfect, but they were certainly better than what we have now uh, from the perspective of rules. So yes, it's very comparable to tax havens for banking. 
Now, the Marshall Islands in Oceania, which is a small collection of islands to the northeast of Papua New Guinea, with a population of around 60,000. And yet, this country hosts one of the world's largest ship registries for flags of convenience. Here's Dr. Jane Lindley again. Flags of convenience are certainly part of the problem. They are known to impose lower standards for vessel safety, labour conditions, and generally turn a blind eye, making them a logical choice for criminal organisations conducting, among other crimes, illegal fishing. However, flags of convenience are also necessary in bridging the sometimes impossible divide for market entry for some legitimate vessels that are unable to meet strict requirements of other legitimate flagging states. And these flags of convenience states also provide an income to those states. New research suggests that the cost of pursuing IU fishing should fall on the vessel's flag state, which could devastate flags of convenience and make it unviable and therefore forcing compliance with stricter rules and in turn lead to reduction in IU fishing. The flip side is also that the elimination of flags of convenience would impact on other commercial trade too, meaning the consumer would pay more for goods shipped internationally. This could be an option, but would take time to implement, and we are already behind on the SDG 14.4 target. The Marshall Islands are strategically positioned along important trade routes for transboundary tuna fishing, so as well as having opportunity to offend, the Marshalls are a flag of convenience, but also a tax haven. There are many layers of complexity around that that attract organised crime. So, Jane, what's the capacity of governments and civil society in Oceania to put a stop to this? Or is it particularly difficult to regulate IUU fishing? And if so, why? So, yes, the regulatory and governance situation I would like to point out is, is quite different between uh, Australia and New Zealand and the small island states that are peppered throughout the, the Pacific Ocean. But it's important to note that something that applies globally is this moving away from the preoccupation with establishing sound laws in many of these countries as being the solution. It's not the solution, it's part of the solution, but laws can only go so far. While they are incredibly necessary and important, they are only part of the solution. Civil society certainly has a role that is often overlooked. So establishing an untraditional pluralistic regulatory response that combines all available and competent parties is important. The response may look quite different between countries and regions, but what is important is establishing and maintaining a stronghold against IU fishing. Another element that needs to be unpacked is culture, the culture of fishing, but also the culture relating to regulation, law enforcement, and the relationship between those in public office. I'm not suggesting that some cultures intentionally evade rules, but tolerance for some forms of corruption may be culturally relevant. This certainly differs between regions, but also between countries. So IUU fishing might not be on the radar of the average consumer, but it is a well-known concern for international organisations and national governments. And lots of initiatives have been launched to tackle and combat this issue. Indeed, tech giants like Google has invested in the Global Fishing Watch, and Microsoft's former CEO, the late Paul Allen, invested in a company called Skylight. And these platforms use technology and data to identify suspicious vessel behavior and helping to control these waters. So given all this, what progress has been made 
and one other choke point. Here's Ian Abina. I mean, I think there has been progress to start on a positive note. I think progress in public awareness, in progress in various previously siloed government agencies working together. You know, you see in the U.S. NOAA and State Department working together more, State Department caring about IUU, NOAA caring about sea slavery, you know, tactics for managing imports of things that are from blacklisted vessels, are worrisome companies, are from regions that have high risk of of IUU. So there is policy progress. There's, I personally think that the most powerful portion of the stakeholder pie is the one where there's been the least progress, and that is the market. And so market players, companies versus the governments. And market players just have not yet really been willing to reckon with the fact that they have illegality in their supply chain. And I think there just has to be more pressure put on those market players. And by that, I mean, lots of different types, you know, companies that you've never heard of that import huge amounts, wholesalers that then sell it on to restaurants and hotel chains and governments that buy a lot of stuff, the EU and the US government buy a lot of seafood, you know, and their purchasing habits have not really progressed as much as they should on these issues. And then individual seafood companies, you know, that's that supply restaurants and individual buyers, all of those sorts of players have not really said, hey, we need to figure out at least how we can turn to the public and say, we know every single ship and every single player that that gets handed our fish between bait and plate. And we need, we can show you that all of them have contracts. We can show you where they were, that they were operating elite, legally, et cetera. That just hasn't happened to any, to any degree, and that has to happen in the marketplace. Governments move much slower. If the market decided to do this, governments would follow really quickly. So how about the private sector? Because after all, they're a big part of both the problem and the solutions, right? Yeah, I mean, I you know, everything is a nail to a hammer. I'm a journalist, so I see everything as a story, you know, guilty as charged. But I think sustained coverage of these problems is the way that I see the market actors realizing this is not going away and they've got to do something about it. And it's not just reading it and being embarrassed. It's also their investors read it, big investors, and they do, you know, actions, investor-led actions. Lawyers read the stuff and sue, you know, and apply pressure via the tools they have. Policymakers, you know, lawmakers read it and you know decide, hey, let's let's um, get involved in this issue more and let's make it obligatory for, you know, again, small things. If a company wants to sell tuna to the U.S. government, the U.S. government buys over two million dollars worth of tuna a year. It goes to military bases and public schools largely. And lawmakers could easily say, hey, look, if, if companies want to buy to the U.S. government, they have to comply with these supply chain rules. And if they can't, then they're not even a bidder. You know, they're not even in the market uh, to compete for that contract. You know, that little things like that have an impact on the marketplace and force companies to start saying, huh, we used to get that contract of $2 million a year selling all the tuna to the U.S. government. And now they put in a new rule. So we're going to have to change how we do things so that we can keep having that contract. That's how the market shifts. 
So, what can be done to improve the situation on the high seas and combat IUU fishing in Oceania, and the organized criminal networks that exploit our oceans and those working on them? Here's Dr. Jade Lindley. While law is only part of the solution, it is necessary to have any hope to enable law enforcement to interrupt and bring offenders to justice. To complement and enable the laws, there also needs to be training of law enforcement and the judiciary, and to ensure those intercepted by police are responded to effectively. Penalties need to be appropriate to the harm caused. We are facing a fish stock crisis, so finding appropriate financial penalties that are realistic can be challenging, but maybe some innovative thinking is needed. Beyond traditional corporation and individual financial penalties and imprisonment, maybe things like license bans, vessel destruction, and donations rather than fine payments may be considered. Adopting industry-wide changes may seem impossible and unachievable, but even small changes will collectively have an impact. Untraditional, innovative regulation and enforcement approaches need to be part of the solution because up until now, it hasn't been effective enough to achieve SDG 14.4. For example, innovative regulatory approaches to address IU fishing could be tied to product labelling. With greater transparency in the minimum standard global labelling of fresh, frozen, cooked and processed seafood will no doubt close the gap on some IU fishing, as it will make it impossible to meet these requirements and allow the fish to be landed. Being turned away from ports increases the effort for criminals and will eventually become unviable. In the EU, transparent seafood labelling is already very well established, but elsewhere around the world, including Oceania, has a lot of catching up to do. Increasing consumer awareness about food fraud is important, as IU fishing is also closely tied to substandard labour practices and potentially human rights breaches. Focusing on inspections could also be another approach to indirectly tackle IU fishing. Finally, what recommendations does Ian have for the international community and the private sector to combat IUU fishing globally? Well, let's say I mean some of these are ambitious, but I'll put them out anyway. Ban or limit transshipment, so offloading of catch at sea from a fishing vessel to a mothership that brings it back to shore. It makes it very, very hard to apply checks on the legality, the labor concerns, the environmental concerns of that fish when it's transferred at sea, far away from any inspectors and paperwork and such. So transshipment is a real problem and when it comes to supply chain traceability and accountability. So banning and limiting, and companies can do that. They could say, hey, look, we're Walmart and we're going to only take seafood that has a supply chain that fits these criteria. And one of them is you can't have transshipment handoffs. So that's one thing. Limiting or banning high seas fishing, very ambitious, but probably key to the survival of the oceans. MPAs, marine protected areas, is a slow going goal, protecting key spots in national waters. There's a movement there and it has had progress, but if you really want to try to slow down ocean depletion, and you're talking about IUU specifically, I'm drifting into ocean depletion, but other things, I think, you know, I'm waiting for the moment when companies, a couple, probably a small set of them, decide that they're going to crack, crack the code on this and really figure out what a really clean supply chain looks like and how they can lead the market by example. Even if it bumps up their price point by 
they're going to try to distinguish themselves by showing what you can do and really look if you can move cargo by rail or truck or plane and have real clarity on every handoff there's no reason you can't do that with fish and ships you just need a company that's willing to do it so that would be one thing that i would love to see a company do so i think i think those are ones that come to mind this is where we leave it for this episode of the index a big thank you to ian and jade for joining us today if you want to read more about the 152 coastal states listed on the iuu fishing index which was created by the GI and Poseidon Aquatic Resource Management Limited. There is a link in the podcast notes. And then, of course, there is also a link to the Global Organized Crime Index, which scores levels of criminality and resilience in each country. It's totally free and can be accessed by anyone. Just head over to ocindex.net. We'll be back in a few weeks with an episode on bright trafficking. That's it for this episode of The Index from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Thin Lawin. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.